Well, good morning, Philippi Church. Hey, for those of you that weren't able to be at our outdoor service um, at the All Sports Park this morning, I thought I would just take a little bit of time earlier in the week to pre-record this sermon just so that you wouldn't miss out on God's Word or miss out on this particular passage in the book of Mark because it's, it's truly an astounding passage. So if you're tuning in online to this, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, verse 26. We're going to be looking at 26 through 52. Phenomenal piece of scripture. Let me pray and then we'll dive right into it. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are a God who speaks. And Lord, we pray that you would make us a people that listen. And Lord, as we open up these, um, these passages, Lord, these, these treasures of your word, God, would you reveal truth to us, Lord? Give us eyes to see. Uh, Lord, shape our hearts and help us to see the truth and be conformed to it. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, have you ever had uh, a time in your life where you told yourself, I'll never do that? whatever it is, or I'll, I'll never be that person, whoever it is, only to find out later in life that you ended up doing or becoming almost exactly that. Let me give you some examples. When I was younger, I used to go to the store and I would see parents with little kids and I would see kids throwing tantrums or getting upset and I would see dads or moms getting frustrated and I would think to myself, ah, it's never going to be me. I'm never going to be that dad. I'm never going to be that parent. I'm never going to lose my cool. I'm never going to let my kids be that misbe- you know, mis- misbehave that much. Surely I'll be a better parent. Then I had kids. Changed things a little bit, right? Another example, when I was young and I was going to the gym for two hours a day and I was in very good shape, I just thought to myself, you know, I'm never going to be somebody that's not in shape. Then life happens, right? A few kids come along. Stress happens. Oh, that's another thing. Stress. I remember being young and thinking to myself, I'm never going to be somebody that's stressed out all the time. I'm never going to be somebody that's just depressed or just weighed down. I'm just going to be a lighthearted person. But at that point in life, I never really had experienced super hard things. Life starts to get hard and stress and anxiety starts to come on. You know, when we're younger, we project this assumed idea of who we think we're going to be and, and that's, that's what we just assume. We just assume I'm going to be like this when I'm older. But then there's this thing that happens. This thing that happens is that the real you in the future meets the projected you. And oftentimes they are completely different. It's usually when we have what's called a midlife crisis, right? There's a movie that portrays this. Maybe you've seen it. It's called The Kid. It's uh, got Bruce Willis in it, and uh, it's from the 90s, I think, maybe early 2000s. But the idea is that Bruce Willis uh, is kind of this jerk, this pretentious, self-centered, egotistical jerk. And, and he ends up somehow meeting himself when he was a kid. He was this kind of chubby, loser, dorky kid. Uh, and, and the kid is so disappointed with who he grows up to be. And the whole movie is kind of about Bruce Willis realizing he never really became who he wanted to be. But it, it really kind of tugs on the heart of, of the audience, I think, for this reason, because we know that... For many of us that are, are you know, getting older, we start to realize, gosh, you know, I'm not who I thought I was going to be. And I fell into all these different things I didn't think I was going to fall into. And I fell short in all these different ways that I didn't think I was going to fall short. You know, the same exact thing is true of our Christian walk with the Lord. We first get saved. We feel like, man, I'm never going to 
trip up in those ways. I'm never going to fall into those sins. I'm never going to fall in that area. I'm never going to be like that person. I'm never going to be legalistic. I'm never going to be dry. I'm never going to be unspirit-filled. I'm, I'm never going to fall in those areas. But, but what we realize is that, uh, that we haven't really walked yet. And there's, there's reasons that people fall into these things. Usually we think this way because, A, we don't realize how sinful we actually are when we first get saved, right? You just don't realize. B, we don't realize how bad the world actually is and how much we still love it. I mean, that's the reality when we first get saved. C, we don't realize how much the enemy hates us. Like, we don't realize how much spiritual warfare there is in following Jesus. And D, we don't know what maturity really looks like. That's the reality. We assume we know what a mature Christian looks like when we're first saved, but we don't really know. We don't really know. Now, this is what the disciples are facing in our text. The disciples are coming face to face with the reality of who they actually are in comparison to who they thought they were. The disciples had this idea, this projection, this perceived idea about how faithful they were going to be and how awesome they were and how committed they were to Christ. They also had this projection about who they thought Jesus was, and it turns out he wasn't exactly what they thought he was going to be, and that really messed them up. You could say that our text today, which is sort of the story about the failings and falling away of the disciples, uh, just this utter disaster, this train wreck, really, of a conclusion to the three-year discipleship program of Jesus, uh, you could really say that this is the kind of the beginning of the spiritual midlife crisis of the disciples. Uh, they come face-to-face with who they're not, and it really brings them to the, the, this, this place of crisis. In every Christian, and I could say this, this confidently, I truly believe this, every Christian has to go through this process. Sometimes multiple times. The process uh, of God stripping back what we think we are, letting us see what we truly are without him so that we become more dependent on him. So today, this, this passage, this sermon is really going to be about falling falling as a Christian. We, we fall. As Christians, we fall. We fall often. We trip. We stumble. We fall. We, we mess up. We fall short. We fail. And this sermon, I think, because this, this passage is trying to teach us something about the failure of men, juxtaposed to the faithfulness of Christ. We're going to learn something about falling today. And here's the deal. Without falling, well, listen to this statement. Without falling, our formation is just theory. It's not material. Okay? It's just theoretical. It's not physical. Without falling, we just are are, are assuming that we're mature, but in reality, until we fall, we don't realize that we actually need to mature. We actually need to grow. And so my my, uh, point today would be that we should embrace falling, and we should see it as God's gift to us in our our maturation process. So let's dive into the passage and look a little bit more closely. Let me give you some background just to catch you up. Um, we are coming towards the end of the book of Mark. It's what is uh, historically referred to as Passion Week. It's the last week of Christ's life. And now we're getting down closer and closer even to the final hours of Christ's life. From this point forward, uh, Peter is really going to focus uh, on exclusively on the, 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 the trial, um, the beating, the murder, the crucifixion, um, of Christ. That becomes the sole focus of his narrative. Jesus, really, this is his final dialogue with his disciples. From this point forward, it's Jesus' disciples are gone, and it's just him alone um, before Pilate, before Herod, and ultimately crucified. 
Jesus has seemingly taught his disciples all that he can teach them with words, and now he is going to transition to teaching them by example. Jesus' life now becomes the lesson rather than his words. Jesus' life of sacrifice and servant leadership. Jesus is going to do now what he ultimately came into this world to do all along, which is to die, to die on the cross, to atone for our sin. So this is where we pick up. If you remember, it's Passover in Jerusalem, which means the city is just bursting with people, millions of pilgrims coming into to town. Jesus has just celebrated the Last Supper in the upper room with his disciples. He's just announced that one would betray him and dismissed that one, Judas, to go and to, to, to betray him after, install, after instilling the Lord's Supper, this thing called communion. And here we pick up in verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and the disciples, <clears throat> it's evening now, it's probably uh, most assuredly dark. They leave out the eastern gate uh, and remaining really within Jerusalem, they, they sort of camp up on the, the Mount of Olives, which is the eastern hill just above the Kidron Valley. Now, it was really a tradition for these guys to camp in Jerusalem during Passover. So it's not odd that they don't go back to Bethany. Uh, the, the disciples wouldn't necessarily be put off by that. And Jesus is really looking for a quiet place. He's looking for a quiet place because he's about to go through what we'll see, labor. I, I helped, uh, it's called whelping. I helped whelp some puppies one time. And uh, it was so annoying because it was the middle of the night and, and the mom didn't want to stay in the whelping box. She kept trying to run out the door and go find a dark place somewhere. Or she kept trying to hide under the bed. The reality is she wanted to be alone. She wanted to be in solitude. She wanted to be somewhere where it was quiet. And Jesus is about to go into labor. He is about to deal with some of the deepest feelings that any human has ever dealt with. And he needs to find a quiet place, a, a place of preparation in order to interact with some of these emotions that he is going to allow to come out. So verse 27, Jesus says to them, and they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. Ugh, what a discouraging prediction. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 28, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So first Jesus predicts that there'll be a betrayer in the upper room, and now Jesus is predicting that there'll be a total failure, that all of the disciples, all of the disciples, are going to abandon him. He quotes this obscure passage out of Zechariah 14.7, and he applies it to himself, saying that, that God is going to strike the shepherd, and by striking the shepherd, the sheep will be confused and scared and dismayed, and they'll run in all different directions. Jesus is saying, that's you. That is going to happen. You're all going to fall away. What a, what a very discouraging prediction. Now, they're so distracted by this idea of striking that they apparently miss what Jesus just said about rising. He says, I'm going to rise and I'm going to meet you in Galilee where this whole thing started up north in, in sort of the, the country where I found you guys. I'll, I'll meet you there. Don't worry. But they don't seem to hear that, right? That They just are completely lost on the idea of resurrection. We see that in the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, interacts with some of the disciples, and they're just still completely confused. They're not expecting a resurrection, even though he, he's told them multiple times. So he predicts that they're going to fall away. Now that word, fall away, it's worth noting, it's the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon, it means to stumble, to fall, to trip, or to be offended. 
Paul uses this word when he talks about the cross as well. He says, the Jews, or he says, pardon me, the Greeks see the cross as foolishness. The Jews see the cross as stumbling. It stumbles them. Peter uses it when he talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the rock of offense, the stone that people sort of trip over. The reality is Jesus is saying, you're going to be offended. You're going to be scandalized. We get our word scandalized from this. You're going to be scandalized by the cross. It's going to offend you. And it's true. The cross is offensive. Not only is it offensive to non-believers, the cross at some point is offensive to every believer. Here it's offensive to them because the cost and the danger associated with it is scandalizing. I mean, these guys were not expecting to have to deal with this cross idea. They were not expecting the level of hatred and violence that would be poured out and bestowed on Jesus. It scandalized them. It tripped them. They didn't know how. It short-circuited their matrix. They just completely, uh, they just completely, the smoke started coming out of their head. They're just completely blown away by this cross idea. They're scandalized by it. And Jesus knew they would be. That's why even though he told them about it over and over again, they still just seemed to ignore it. Now, Peter, in verse 29, Peter hears this, this prediction that they're all going to fall away. And he goes, no, 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 no. He said to him, even though they, all the other disciples, even though they all fall away, Look at it, 29. I will not. This, this, Peter stands up and he goes, um, excuse me, I'm sure that it's very possible that these guys would fail, but I'm not going to fail. Peter is very confident. He's blinded by his misguided self-confidence. He, he can see the failure of others, but he, he can't imagine uh, his own failure. He just, he just, it doesn't, and I don't think it's fake. I think he really genuinely thinks that there's no way he's going to reject Jesus, because he feels so confident in this point. He feels so brave at this point. Now, haven't we all kind of been young Peter? Haven't we all kind of had a point in our Christian life where we, we said, as I said in my introduction, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to fall in that area, right? The reality is Peter doesn't know what Peter doesn't know. And, you know, early in our Christian life, and really all throughout our Christian life, we don't know what we don't know. And Jesus is graciously trying to prepare Peter so that he can really take account, so that he can really make sure that he's ready for what's coming. But Peter's just, he's just completely lost on it. Now, Jesus, desiring to sort of um, get Peter to take this prediction seriously, he puts like this memory trace. He puts a finer point on his prediction. He says in verse 30, Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh, the rooster crowing, by the way, was synonymous with 3 a.m. That was when they considered, that was the time in the morning that they called the rooster crow. So Jesus is saying, really within a matter of hours, Peter, like, this isn't even like, oh, someday, Peter, you'll deny me. No, this is like, dude, in, in a couple hours, you're going to deny me. And not once, not twice, three times, you're going to deny me. Imagine what Peter's thinking in this one. I mean, imagine just his brain is just on overdrive. Like, what is he talking about? How could I possibly ever do that? I just can't imagine a scenario where I would deny Christ. So Peter 31, he doubles down. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, Peter goes to what he thinks is the most extreme possible um, scenario, which is death. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And listen, they all said the same. So this isn't just Peter's misguided self-confidence. This is all the disciples. Peter's just speaking up for them. All the disciples are very confident at this point about their ability. See, again, they have this projected idea 
of future obedience, this projected idea of future faithfulness. We will stick it. Don't worry. We're going to crush it. We're not going to mess up. We got this. All of them are confident. But see, Peter, who represents the 12, Peter is not accounting for some things. First of all, he's not accounting for reality. It's kind of like me when I sit watching World War II movies, you know, and I see the guy on the battlefield who's a coward, and I'm like, I would never be that guy. But the reality is I, I've never really been in a battle. I've never really had someone shooting at me, so I really don't know how I would act. So Peter really, at this point, he, he's assuming that he's going to be faithful, but he doesn't really know. Peter's also not accounting for his own human frailty, and this is what Jesus is going to try to get him to think about, his own human frailty, his own lack of resolve. Peter doesn't know what Peter doesn't know. He doesn't know how weak he really is. He thinks he's strong. Peter's also not accounting for the enemy. See, there's a real enemy that Jesus told Peter at another point in another gospel uh, that the, the enemy was asking to sift Peter like wheat. In other words, he's asking to take Peter and shake him violently to see if he can separate anything out of him. And then Jesus says, but take heart, I've, I've prayed for you. So Peter doesn't have a clue. The disciples don't have a clue what they're about to face. Now, note here, all of the disciples say it, so they all have this inflated sense of self-confidence. And 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. This is on the Mount of Olives, and Gethsemane means olive press. It means olive press, because this is an olive grove, olive trees. You can go there today. It's in uh, the eastern side of Jerusalem. And uh, it's significant that it's called Gethsemane, olive press, because Jesus has come to this place to be pressed, as we'll see. He's going to be pressed emotionally, physically, spiritually. And he said to the disciples, he gives a specific command to his guys. Sit here while I pray. Not confusing. It's not meta. It's, it's a very clear, um, direct command. He doesn't ask them to. He doesn't say if you would like to. He doesn't say if it's comfortable or convenient for them. He says, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. So now he's selected his inner circle to come closer in so that they can actually hear and witness what he's praying. And uh, he selected James and John and Peter and began to be, listen, greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you, what you will. First thing I want you to see here is that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years earlier, that Jesus would be this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He bore our sorrows. He was despised for our iniquity. He he uh, was stricken by God. He was the shepherd who was, as he's already said, stricken and the sheep flee. He is afflicted. This is Jesus in this sorrowful state. Jesus, like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, is, his weight, his burden has become incrementally heavier. It's increased every step he grows closer to the cross. The weight of the world's sin and the wrath of God that is about to be poured out on him in totality, the cup of wrath about to be drunk, the, the dregs all the way down to the bottom of the cup literally is weighing on him. <clears throat> so what is Jesus doing here? Well, first of all, Jesus is he's manicuring a place 
that he can allow his emotion to come out. He's manicuring a place that he can, see Jesus has been compartmentalizing, I think to some degree, the full weight of this and his humanity, his emotion, it, it's, it's strong. He's fearful, he's, he's uh, the capillaries and his face are bursting, causing him to sweat drops of blood, we learn in the other gospels. Jesus is so uh, fiercely conflicted, knowing that what he is about to go through is going to be so intense. He needs a place to process. He needs a place to prepare. He needs a place to find quiet before the Lord so that his emotion can break out for just a moment. Uh, you know, emotion is a crazy thing. Last year when my dad passed away, you know, we walked out of the hospital and it was like, uh, you're just stunned at first. You know, it's not like, for me at least, I wasn't just bursting into tears. I was just sort of stunned. But, but you're just thinking about what's the next thing I need to do. It's like, well, get out of the building and then make sure my mom's okay, make sure my brother's okay. Okay, and then I get in the car and then I'm like, well, where do I go? And I'm like, well, I'll go to a coffee shop and get a coffee and then I'm just gonna go have some alone time. I get to the coffee shop, I see all these people I know. And none of them know that my dad just died. So I'm just holding back all this emotion, just pretending like everything's fine. Hey, yep, yep, good, good to see you. And then I get in the car and I drive to a quiet place and bam, all those emotion hits. And it just, it just, it just like, a, like a dam broken, just let loose. And I needed that. And I needed that. As humans, we need that. So Jesus is just, he needs to find a place to let all this emotion cut loose for a moment um, so that he can begin to sort of process and prepare for this. By the way, if you don't make healthy, godly spaces to interact with the real hurts and real emotions in your soul, they will begin to come out in other areas that are unhealthy, like a balloon. When you squeeze a balloon, it all goes somewhere, right? Uh, so remember that. Create spaces like Jesus does here. Create spaces to interact with your grief, to interact with your sorrow. What is Jesus doing here? He's, he's connecting himself to the Father in order to prepare himself to drink the cup. And Jesus knows what he's about to do is is going to be intense and he needs to be in lockstep. He needs to be in lockstep with the Father in order to be able to go through this. He says he's going to drink the cup. What's the cup? The cup is a symbol pulled out of the Old Testament that refers unmistakably to the wrath of God. It's not uh, the wrath of man. Jesus isn't fearful of the cross where he's going to get beat and, 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 and murdered and, and struck and have his hands nailed. That's not the thing Jesus is fearful of. Jesus is fearful of the pummeling of the Father. The, disc, the Trinitarian disconnect between him and his Father is so intense. This cup of wrath that he's going to drink is so intense. You might say, well, what's wrath? Is that God just being angry and upset? Or what does that mean? Well, wrath, God's wrath is his settled, retributive indignation or anger towards all who commit sin and evil. It's not God throwing a temper tantrum. It's God, his nature being offended by something that is literally contrary to his own divine attributes. And so his anger is the need to deal with what is offensive to his very nature. That's what makes him a just God. God is not angry at the son, but the son is going to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. They're going to trade. They're going to trade places. God's going to pour out the wrath that is deserved on you and I, on the son, and the son is going to enmesh his righteousness to us when we're in him. This is the gospel. This is really good news. And Jesus is anticipating this crucial moment in human history where he will atone, make redemptive, uh, redemption for sin. This is, this is just insane. But Jesus is doing something else here. He's, he's also submissively petitioning the father 
asking if there's another way of salvation. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Jesus, who's limited his omniscience, that means he doesn't know everything in this moment. He's, he's saying, Father, is there another way for salvation to be accomplished aside from me having to absorb the wrath, your, your, your massive wrath that, that is abiding on all of humanity? Is there another way? And the answer, <clears throat> there is not. There's not. There's no other way. There's only one way for salvation to be possible. The Father responds with silence. Such intimacy here between Jesus. I don't have time to get into it, but, but there's such intimacy here between Jesus and his Father. There's, there, there's so, there's, you could preach a whole sermon here about how to pray in times of distress. He calls him Abba. He, he's, he's perseverant. He's persistent. This, he's, he's submissive to God's will in this. I mean, there's a whole sermon there just about prayer. You could study that on your own, but we've got to keep moving. Verse 37 Jesus, after you know, experiencing this great distress, he comes and finds them sleeping. Oh, and he said to Peter, Simon, notice he calls him Simon, not Peter. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? That means that it literally wasn't even 60 minutes before these guys conked out. Now, sleeping is not wrong. Neither is staying awake very spiritual. The point here is that Jesus asked them to stay awake, and they didn't do it. They weren't tuned in to the very specific request of Christ, and that's the problem. 38, watch out. Jesus takes a moment here to use their failure and falling asleep in order to um, make a greater, uh, sort of a greater point about spiritual apathy. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And famously says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, you guys, I know you guys want to stay awake, but you got to want to stay awake enough to where you can control your flesh because your flesh wants to go to sleep. Okay? Um, Jesus sees this as a perfect, uh, perfect physical illustration of spiritual temptation, spiritual apathy. And let me just say, passivity comes easily. It's not hard to fall asleep. You're, you're going to fall asleep spiritually unless you're working hard not to. It's your natural trajectory. So that's, that's nap number one. Here comes nap number two and nap number three. Look at verse 39. And he again went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. I and mean, these guys are just exhausted. It's been a long day. They had this long upper room discourse. Jesus washed their feet. He talked, I mean, look at John 15, 16, 17. They, he, Jesus unpacked all of that for them. It's been an intense day and they're exhausted and it's dark and it's quiet in the garden and they're cozy leaning up against a, an, a, an olive tree and they're, they're just, they can't seem to stay awake and they did not know what to answer him. I love that. Jesus is like, seriously, you fall asleep again? And they're like, oh, but I don't know what to say. 41, and he came the third time, nap number three, and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Uh, and then Jesus says, it is enough. It's enough. I've done what I came here to do. You guys missed out on your opportunity to be in this with me. Now the hour has come, he says, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus, has been, it's revealed to him by the spirit that Judas has in that moment betrayed him and that they're coming into the garden to arrest him. Verse 42, he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See, now notice Jesus is not just waiting for them to come. He says, let's go, let's meet them. It's important because Jesus is choosing to be arrested right now. He's not being arrested by accident. This is all according to plan, as we'll see. 
43, and immediately when he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away to under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then immediately they come up to arrest him. Now they worked out this signal because it was very dark. And, uh, you know, they they're probably only have torch light uh, in the evening. Not to mention, Jesus is very common looking. These guards may not have known, especially in the, in the low light, exactly who he was. So they worked out a symbol. And, and Judas really stoops to this very low place of pretending to kiss the rabbi, pretending to greet him, calling him master, which was a false, um, really a false proclamation of his lordship over his life. Judas becomes the archetype of human betrayal here. Judas's kiss. I mean, everyone, it's infamous. Everyone knows about Judas's kiss. And I just can't help but wonder, you know, how many people have gone to hell kissing the cheek of Christ? How many people have gone to hell with, the lips, with their lips bearing the name of Jesus, yet really all along being his enemy? Someday we'll find out. 46, they laid hands on him, seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, we know this is Peter from other Gospels, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We also know this man was named Malchus, right? Now, Peter here is eager to prove himself. He's no doubt feeling insecure about Jesus' lack of confidence in him. Peter, uh, so Peter takes things into his own hand. He goes, I've got to prove myself. Jesus doesn't think I can do it. Jesus doesn't think I'm going to be able to stand for him. Jesus thinks I'm a coward. So he grabs a sword without being given an instruction for this, and he runs and takes things into his own hands and lops off somebody's ear. Clearly, this was not Jesus' intention. Okay. Now, there's a point here I want you to see. Lack of confidence in God's plan and an inflated confidence in your own strength always leads to bleeding victims, okay? What, what we do often is when we feel insecure, we're not believing the gospel. When we feel insecure, we feel like we need to prove that we're somehow more spiritual than others. We start making up our own rules. We start making up our own playbook. And then we, we play that playbook very, very extremely. We, we get out on the street corner, we start screaming at people in megaphones. Did Jesus ever ask you to do that? No, but it makes me seem and feel like I'm, I'm a, a sort of a level above the other disciples. This is what Peter's doing here. He says, in a settled, confident place of gospel belief, doing what Jesus has asked him to do. No, this is going rogue, going on on his own, from a place of insecurity, trying to prove that he is who he thinks he is. This is him trying to, to bear out his own insecurities, and somebody gets their ear lopped off in, in, at the same time. He's getting out in front of the Lord. You know, sometimes I go snow backpacking and, um, and I put all of my gear into the sled and I, and I drag the sled behind me. And, and I have these little poles that I use um, to keep the sled behind me. But sometimes if I put too much rope, too much slack in the rope of my poles, I'll be going down a hill and all of a sudden this most annoying thing ever happens. The sled starts to go right past me and then starts you know, pulling me down the hill. So it's important that I keep those poles tight so that the sled rides right behind me as I go down the hill. I want it to track right behind me. It's annoying when things get out in front of you. And this is what Peter's doing here. He's getting out in front of the Lord. He, he's, he's assuming that he knows the play. He's assuming that he knows what Jesus probably wants. Jesus probably wants to fight. This is probably the time to fight. This is the time for me to use this sword that I've been carrying around, right? Uh, he's getting out ahead of the Lord. We do the same thing. 
We do the same thing when we become legalistic. We, assume, we do the same thing when we sort of codify things that, that God never actually told us to do. Well, let's be strict Sabbatarian. Well, Jesus never said to do that. Let's not go to restaurants on Sunday because we might cause someone else to work. Jesus never said to do that. Stop getting out in front of him. Stop lobbing, lobbing off people's ear with things that Jesus never asked you to do. Quit being a, a Peter here. Okay? 46. They laid hands on him. They seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? In other words, why are you, what's with all the military might? What's with all the, the, the armament? Why, why are you guys out here like I'm some kind of like crazy insurrectionist or something? Day after day, he says in 49, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus is saying three things here, basically. He's saying, your nefarious intentions are obvious. The fact that you're arresting me in the middle of the night, I know what you're up to. You're trying to do this in a way that's not going to get a public um, protest on your hands. He's saying, your ignorance regarding my demeanor is oblivious. You, you guys, you see me in the temple. I'm, I'm a rabbi. I'm not walking around with a sword. What are you doing with all this military might? But most importantly, he says, your arrest is all part of God's providence. You notice he says, let the scripture be fulfilled. This is Jesus letting these guys know that what they're doing is exactly what God has intended for them to do. They're not getting the leg up on Christ. They're not winning in this moment. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing according to God's plan. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing. Notice, by the way, verse 50, they all fled exactly like Jesus said they would, right? And a young man, this is so bizarre, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Uh, what's with the naked kid in his pajamas? We've got this young kid who's apparently, you know, watching what's going on. He, he, he probably snuck out of his house wearing his pajamas. And somehow they maybe think he's with them, so they try to arrest him. And he wiggles out of it and runs off in the nude. I mean, this is just bizarre. Now, this is only in the book of Mark, and I'm not going to spend much time on it. Most scholars assume this to be sort of a Hitchcockian cameo of John Mark, the author. You know what I mean by Hitchcockian? Remember those old Hitchcock movies? Uh, Hitchcock would, would sort of hide somewhere in the scene to see. He would add himself in the scene, but, you know, never saying anything or doing anything and make it draw attention to himself. And they go, oh, there's Hitchcock in the background. It's almost like John Mark is telling this quick story um, that's really painting himself in a pretty unflattering light. And I think the reason is because he's trying to make this case against the faithlessness of the disciples. And his story really fits right into that. It's, it's quite interesting. You could study it more on your own. Okay, so that's our passage. Let's, let's step back here and let's ask the question, what's the point? What's the point of all this? Why is, why is Mark grouping all this together? What are we to learn here? Uh, I would say this. Mark is contrasting for us. And Mark does that a lot. He likes to contrast. Mark is contrasting the disciples' failings with Jesus' faithfulness. You catch that? He's contrasting the disciples' failings with Jesus' faithfulness. Uh, and I believe that we are meant to learn something here about falling, what I, what I like to call falling faithfulness. Okay, falling faithfulness. Falling faithfulness is not apostasy. It's not Christ rejection. It's not falling away from the faith. Falling faithfulness is falling your way into the kingdom. Okay, it's falling your way into the kingdom. I think this is something that we need to see as, as valuable in our own sanctification process, our own process of growth and maturity. So I want to give you, in the rest of our time, I think Mark here has five things for us 
um, about falling when you're a believer, okay? Five truths about falling when you're a believer. Uh, maybe some of you have been following Jesus for a while. You've fallen a lot. So maybe some of this will resonate. Maybe some of you have just recently come to Christ and you haven't had a, any big falls yet. Uh, so, so I want you to take note of these things. This is, this is important and pertinent for everybody, for every Christian. Five truths about falling when you are a believer. Number one, this is important, write this down. Number one, falling is part of following. Falling is part of following. This is something that Christians, when they first get saved, often don't understand. And it really can trip you up if you don't understand it. You know, you get saved, you get baptized, you get born again, you're on fire. And then a couple months go by and all of a sudden you start having all of these old inklings of these things that you used to like to do and you thought went away. And you stumble and you fall and all of a sudden you go, well, man, I can't go back to church. I feel like a phony. They're all going to judge me. You know, I tell new Christians this all the time. Falling is part of following. I remember when I was a kid, I bought this um, this uh, juggling kit. It came with three juggle bags and a book on how to juggle. And I remember step one was take the juggle bags and throw them on the ground. Pick them up and throw them on the ground again. And it literally told you to do this for 10 minutes. It just throw them on the ground, pick them up. And it was ridiculous. I'm like, why in the world would you want me to throw them on the ground and pick them up again? But then I realized, after 10 hours of trying to learn how to juggle, I realized what it was trying to teach me was that part of learning how to juggle is dropping the bags a lot. If you're not going to be willing to drop the bags, you're probably not going to learn how to juggle. The Christian life is counterintuitive to everything you've ever known in your world. You've lived your entire life according to your own will, according to your own way, according to your own thinking, and now you've come into this new kingdom where God is asking you to act in an entirely different way. You're going to fall. It's just going to happen. What I love about this passage is that Jesus tells these guys that he knows they're going to fall before they do. He says, I know you're going to fall. He says, he says uh, uh, look at verse... Uh, 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. That's so comforting. You could see it as discouraging, but I see it as comforting because what it means is that Jesus sees and knows that we're going to fall. Therefore, Jesus has made provision for our fall, that Jesus is going to work in our fall, and that that fall is actually going to help us to walk better next time. You ever watch a baby learn how to walk? We've got a toddler living in our house right now, and it's so cute to watch him walk. His version of walking is really kind of like falling, but then just catching yourself at the last minute. It's like fall, fall, fall. And then he, he, he falls down a lot, but he's just learning. He's just learning, right? That's the reality of walking as a Christian. It's falling, okay? We're going to fall. The good news in this is not that God is okay with falling. It's not that God is okay with our sin. It's not that God is ever desiring that we would trip up or fall. But the good news in this is that, um, is that, this all, that in our sanctification, it is not about attaining perfection. It is about believing perfection and living accordingly. Let me explain what I mean by that. If the Christian life was about becoming perfect, then falling would be a bad thing. But the Christian, listen, this is important. The Christian life is not about becoming perfect. Becoming perfect is what happens when you get saved, positionally. God credits perfection into your account. The Christian life is growing up into the perfection you already have. And part of the way that we do that is we fall because falling reminds us that the perfection we have is not our own. It was given to us. It's a gift. It was imputed. See, if we never fell, we would think, well, my righteousness is, is from my own works because I never fall. 
But because we fall, it reminds us that our perfection actually was given as a gift. And falling helps us to remember that. It's, it's really important, okay? So, number one, falling is part of following. Number two, falling reveals God's foreknowing. Falling reveals God's foreknowing. Look again at verse 27. In verse 27, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Here's the good news. Jesus knew these guys would be He knew that they would fail. He knew that they would fall. And because he knew, he prepared for it. God has seen our future straying. He's atoned for our future failing and secured our future heading. And that should be a great comfort to us. Jesus knows that we're going to fall. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by death of his son. In other words, if God could save us when we hated him and didn't want him, he says, how much more now that we are are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Paul's logic here is if God saved you when you didn't want him, when God saved you when you hated him, how much more is God going to continue to save him now that you do love him, now that you have become one with him, now that you have been reconciled to him? Okay, my point is that God finishes what he starts. And when he adopted you, he knew you were going to fall. When he adopted you, he knew he was adopting someone in process. He knew he wasn't adopting someone who was perfect. So he gives you perfection, and then he helps you grow into it. And he knows like a toddler, you're going to trip, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble. What's the difference between a believer and a non-believer? It's not perfection. It's not perfection. It's a willingness to believe in God's accredited perfection. It's faith. Faith is the difference. Okay, faith is the difference. What was the difference between Judas and Peter? The difference between Judas and Peter was not failure. They both failed. In fact, they both failed pretty equally bad. The difference was that Peter stuck around to believe in God's forgiveness and and grace and and gave uh, and accepted God's um, propitiation for him. Judas didn't. Judas killed himself before he could even get a chance to repent. He, he, he didn't allow God to forgive him. This is, this is the difference between a believer and a non-believer. It's not the perfection. It is faith. Faith and accredited righteousness. Okay, it's important that we understand that. Number three, third reason I think failing or falling is a good thing. Number three, number three falling reminds us of our fleshly weakness. Falling reminds us of our fleshly weakness. In verse 38, Jesus reminded these guys when they kept falling asleep, hey, this is why you need to be attentive to your soul. This is why you need to be spiritually with it. This is why you need to be awake, okay? And Jesus was trying to get these guys to understand that they shouldn't trust their flesh. By flesh, I mean their physicality. They, they shouldn't trust their own strength. They shouldn't trust their own ability to follow God. They shouldn't have faith in their own faith. That's a bad idea. Jesus was trying to get these guys to see that because at this point, all their confidence was in themselves. And the only way they were going to learn to not have confidence in themselves was to, to, to fail themselves so that they could shift that confidence over to Jesus. Jesus knows that they don't really know how weak they are. Okay? Jesus knows that they don't know how weak they really are. And Jesus himself, in his humanity, though he was without sin, he was still a human, he understood how weak he was. That's why he prayed every day, went into the wilderness and sought the Lord, was in lockstep with the Father because he knew his propensity to do what Adam did in his humanity, which would be to fail, to fall. Uh, So what Jesus wants these guys to understand is he wants them to understand that their propensity to fall. I want you to note it, by the way, in verse 38. Jesus doesn't say, look at it, look at verse 38. Jesus doesn't say that they should pray that they won't sin. He doesn't say they should pray that they won't sin. 
Rather, he says they should pray that they won't be tempted to sin. Why would Jesus say that? I think the reason is that Jesus is trying to get these guys to think upstream. Okay? He's trying to get these guys, I'm going to use a term and I'll unpack it. He's trying to get these guys to mortify this, the flesh. That's, a, that's an old reformed word used by John Owen. He has a book called Mortification of Sin. We don't use that word. He's trying to get these guys to mortify their sin. And what mortify means, it doesn't mean dealing with the sin you've already committed. That's called repentance. Mortify means dealing with your sin proclivities. Mortify means decreasing the areas in your life where the, you may have strongholds, where the enemy may have power, or where you may be sinning or allowing sin in your life. It's, it's about minimizing your temptation. Now, listen, temptation is not sin. But in order to deal with sin, we need to deal with our temptation. We need to fight the battle at temptation. If you're only fighting the battle after you've already lost, that battle's not going to be very effective. Jesus is trying to get these guys not just to deal with the failings, but to prepare for their future potential failings. Pray so that you do not enter temptation. Now, just in a really practical pastoral level here, let me echo what Jesus is saying to these guys and say, where are you giving yourself way too much credit? Where in your life are you trusting yourself way too much? I can watch that movie. Yeah, there's a sex scene in it. It doesn't trigger me. Baloney. Okay, yeah, I can have social media and, and have all these friends on there that, that are completely worldly or posting stuff I shouldn't be thinking about or seeing. It's fine. It's not going to bother me. Baloney. Mortify the flesh. Put it to death. Deal with the things that might cause you to stumble. It's such a, uh, a, a misunderstanding of the freedom of Christ to think I'm going to put myself in situations where I could very easily fall because I'm free to do so. Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Jesus is saying, stay awake. Stay awake. Okay? And this is what falling does for us. Okay? My third point, falling reminds us of our fleshly weakness. Falling reminds us that we're a little too overconfident. Okay? Falling, we get up and go, oh, shoot, maybe I should not put myself in that situation again. I, I've been trying for 10 years to get good at snowboarding. Uh, it's really hard. And every time I start to think I'm getting it, I'm carving down the hill, I'm feeling pretty good. I, I sort of loosen up a little bit and I start to not really think as much about staying off my heels. And before you know it, I catch an edge. And if you snowboard or ski, you know what I'm talking about. I catch an edge, I catch an edge and wham, down I go. And every time I fall, I go, oh man, I need to stay diligent when I'm going down the hill. It's as soon as I start to let up Okay, let he who th thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Okay, the reality is, when we fall, it forces us to go, maybe I should think a little bit about how weak I really am. When we fall, it reminds us how prone we are to falling. Christians are far too trusting of their own ability to stand against sin, and apathy is our natural trajectory. Number four, fourth point about falling. Falling fosters family. Falling fosters family. Notice in the text that Jesus is going into prayer in Gethsemane and he doesn't want to be alone. You notice that? He doesn't want to be alone. And now you could say, well, Jesus is just trying to have a teachable moment. He wants his disciples to see what it looks like to pray. That's probably true. But I also believe Jesus did not want to be alone. No one wants to suffer alone. And there's a point here for us. I think there's a very important point here for us. And that is that Jesus is setting a precedent for being pressed, a precedent for being pressed, that as Christians, when we fall, it's often because we're not truly in community. And when we fall and we fall alone, the odds of us getting back up in a healthy way 
are not as good. In our radically individualistic, self-made, self-centered culture, making it alone is praised, right? Everyone wants to have a story. I did it all by myself. Nobody helped me. I was racks to riches. I did it all on my own. I hustled. I worked hard. I stayed up late. I did everything I needed to do. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. That preaches to our culture, right? It doesn't work in the kingdom, and it doesn't work in reality. In the kingdom, God doesn't praise people for being self-made. He praises people for being community-made. The New Testament is really uh, largely about this communal reality that we do this thing called Christianity together, that we fall together, that we work for, towards righteousness together, okay? Show me an isolated believer, okay? Show me an isolated believer. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Somebody that says, I don't need the church, my church is the woods. I'm just going to go walk around in the woods. That's church for me. I can listen to sermons online, whatever. Show me an isolated believer, someone who has rejected the church, someone that doesn't think they need the body of Christ. Show me an isolated believer, and I will show you a Christian living in unconfessed sin. If you're not in the body, who are you confessing sin to? I will show you an unstoked passion for Christ, like a coal that's kicked out to the side of the fire all alone, not gathering any heat from the other coals. I'll show you someone with a li very little love for the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, which subsequently always leads to very little love for Christ himself. I will show you someone with little opportunity to die to self because they only have to serve themselves. And I will show you someone with a mind forged in an echo chamber of their own thoughts. Show me someone who chooses to fall alone rather than fall in community, and I will show you a peaked anorexic believer, someone that is spiritually starved, someone is not built up. It's for this reason that Paul said in Galatians 6, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in transgression, that's falling, if anyone falls, you who are spiritual, that is mature, should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. That's the church's job to pick people up when they fall. But see, here's what happens in our culture. We fall, we go to the next church because we don't like people knowing about our sin. It's really the church's job to help each other. We're supposed to fall in community. Keep watch on yourselves, he says, lest you too be tempted. And then he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the purpose of the body. It's so that when we fall, we have something to keep us steadfast. This is why Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You've heard me say this before, but that word stir up literally means frustrate. Don't let someone get apathetical. Don't let someone fall asleep in the garden. Kick them, whatever you gotta do. Wake up, wake up. That's what the purpose of the church is. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. You can't be the body if you're not together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so we see this all throughout the New Testament. And I think Jesus here is modeling this for us. That when you go through trouble, when you go through tribulation, when you fall, when you struggle, when you are agonizing, don't do it alone. Now, let me say, this is important. Just because you're coming to church on Sunday doesn't mean you're in the church. That's one of the main lies of this, first, uh, of this 21st century Christianity that we're living in in the West. Okay? Just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're in the church. If you're falling and you're failing and your sin and your struggle and your weakness doesn't follow you into the church publicly, then you have not entered the community. 
If the church isn't helping you in your righteousness, isn't helping you in your communion, isn't helping you to follow Jesus more, if you're not bringing the worst sides of you, your shadow side into the dark or into the church, out of the dark, then you're not really in the church. Most people hate the church because they've never actually been part of the church. They've just attended the church. And attending the church and being part of the church are totally different things. i got to move on. Number five. And this is the most important point. So don't check out on me. The most important point. In falling, we stop having faith in our faith. And we start having faith in his faithfulness. That's such an important sentence. I'm going to say it again. When we fall, we stop having faith in our own faith. And we start having faith in his faithfulness. A lot of what we think is faith in Christianity is not faith in him. It's faith in ourselves. It's a belief in yourself faith. It's a faith that I will have faith. I believe that I will believe. That's not really saving faith. If your faith is rooted in your own faith, it's not saving. Saving faith is faith rooted in his faithfulness. Are you with me? It's faith rooted in his faithfulness. There's a verse you have to see in our text, verse 28. Look at it again. Jesus tells these guys, you're all going to fall away. And then he says, but after... I am raised, meaning the resurrection. I will go before you to Galilee. Of course, Jesus is is a very practical reason for mentioning this. He's going to go to Galilee and meet him there. But the implications of what Jesus is saying there are huge. He is going before them. Okay, Jesus didn't just get there before us. Listen to this. Jesus didn't just get there before them. He made a way for them through death through the grave, through the cross, resurrected and ascended. Jesus was the first. I keep talking about snow analogies for some reason in this, which is funny because it's hot. But years ago, I, I, my first time ever snowshoeing, and, uh, and I always thought snowshoeing, you know, you're just going to kind of run along the top of the snow. And we went out, and after there was like two or three feet of fresh powder, and we went and we broke our own trail. And I was amazed how much work snowshoeing is in fresh snow. It's terrible. Your snowshoe still sinks down like a foot. And every time you pick it up, you're bringing all this powder with you. It's exhausting. So me and my father-in-law, we went together, and we realized that if we took turns breaking trail, it was much easier. Uh, so we would do that. And then we realized at the end, let's never do this again. Let's never snowshoe in fresh powder. Let's make sure if we're going to snowshoe, we do it on a snowmobile path somewhere where the snow's already been packed. Here's the reality of Christian faith. Christian faith is not plowing our own trail. It's not finding our own way up the mountain. No, Christian faith is being united by faith to Jesus who has already taken the hill, already conquered death, already paid for sin, already conquered the enemy, already been resurrected. He's the first born. It says in Colossians and Romans, if you want to look at it, Colossians 1.18, Romans 8.28, we don't have time. The New Testament says Jesus is the firstborn. That doesn't mean he's the first created. It means he's the first resurrected. He's the first of a whole new line of humanity. He's the first progenitor, the author of an entirely new species of humanity. And we follow in those footsteps. He's already broken the trail. He's already made the way. And this is why falling is so good. Because when we fall, we remember that we aren't breaking trail. We are supposed to believe the gospel and follow in what he's already done. Jesus was faithful while the disciples were faithless. That's the whole point of this passage. 
Jesus was faithful while the disciples were faithless. While the disciples were sleeping, Jesus was suffering and submitting. While the disciples were fleeing, Jesus was taking the beating and doing the atoning. While they were wallowing in defeat and in full retreat, Jesus was working the victory and charging the hill. He was doing everything they weren't. They were afraid. They were scattering. They were sleeping. They were failing. Jesus was conquering. Jesus was submitting. Jesus was saving. When we're asleep at the wheel, Jesus is still driving the car. Isn't that good news? And that's why, as Christians, our faith is not in our own faith. It's in his faithfulness. What was the difference between these skittish, coward, coward of disciples that we see before the cross and these brave church-planting apostles that were declaring the gospel. What was the difference? The difference was Jesus' victory sat right between those two realities. Jesus was victorious. They believed it. The gospel is news. It's news that he already is victorious, that he has won. He's taken the, the field. He's made his way up the hill. He's broken the trail. He is the progenitor of a new faith, and we're following behind him. And when you believe that, it changes all things in your life. When we don't fall, we start to think maybe we're making our own trail. So, conclusion, by no means should we invite falling or failing in our lives. I'm not saying we should go out and try to fail. What I am saying is that when we do fail, John says in his epistle, when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's prayed for us. We have an avenue. We have this beautiful thing called repentance. And what I am saying is that when you fall in the Christian life, God is going to use that fall. So if, if you have fallen, if you are falling, or if you're going to fall, remember, God is going to use that. He's going to use it to shape maturity in you. He's going to make you a mature Christian. See, a mature Christian is not a perfect Christian. A mature Christian is not a gifted Christian or a confident Christian or a charismatic Christian. A, per, a mature Christian is a humble Christian, a broken and contrite Christian, a grace-filled Christian, and a Christ-exalting Christian. That's why Peter said in his final words at the church, he said, grow in grace and in the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. This is really the main thing Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. By all accounts, it seems like the Jesus course, the three-and-a-half-year program they were in, failed. Until you realize that the disciples' failing was actually the final lesson. And the lesson was very simple. It's about him, not about you. Robert Clinton said, We think Jesus is trying to teach us a thousand different things, but really Jesus is trying to teach us one thing a thousand different ways. And that one thing is that it's all about him. This was one of the final ways Jesus was going to teach these guys what they needed to learn. And that was that it's not about them. They can't do it in their own strength. It's not about their faith in their own faith. It's about his faithful.